Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This is Episode 9, B-L-O-O-D. The police report and the photos document blood at the scene. I've seen these photos. Victor was wearing a white t-shirt, and there are two smears of blood on his shirt, one on the right and one on the left side of his chest. It's not a huge amount of blood, but enough to make a smear or two, at least. There is also blood on the snow next to him, and there are also scratches on his face and wrist. An autopsy report has a short section which describes the clothing of the deceased. It's somewhat detailed, but not lengthy either. For example, in Victor's report, it doesn't just say t-shirt or white t-shirt. The report also notes some details about the clothing, as one might expect, I think, of a forensic scientist. For example, it notes something about the front of the t-shirt. It says that on the front of the t-shirt, you can observe the word printed Bud Light. But the one thing that the autopsy does not say that you can see on the front of the shirt is blood. Bud Light, yes. Blood, no. Now you might say, well, the blood on the t-shirt is documented on both the police photos and the police report, so it's not the end of the world. In a courtroom, those things would suffice. And my answer to that is, what if the police photos go missing? Or what if the police report goes missing? It would be nice if the medical examiner's office noted that there was blood on his clothes. But really, the most frustrating thing about it was not for me that the medical examiner's office did not document the blood. The most frustrating part for me was that I was unable to get anyone to answer a definite yes to the following question. My question was, should a resident of North Dakota who loses a loved one in a manner that requires an autopsy feel confident that the resulting autopsy report should and will note the presence of blood on clothing if blood was present? Can I just read that one more time? Should a resident of North Dakota who loses a loved one in a manner that requires an autopsy feel confident that the resulting autopsy report should and will note the presence of blood on clothing if blood was present? Nobody would even give me that. Not the North Dakota Department of Health, not the North Dakota Board of Medicine. In fact, nobody would offer a resounding yes. Maybe I'm simply expecting too much, but to you, dear listener, if you reside in the state of North Dakota, despite my almost desperate pleading for someone to step up and be rational and accountable and brave enough to stick out their neck, nobody would go on the record and answer yes to this question. So, I just thought you might want to know, in order to prepare yourself mentally and emotionally, that if your spouse or mother or father or brother or sister, or God forbid your son or daughter, dies in such a fashion, you shall not expect the agency who performs the autopsy on your loved one to go that extra mile and write those five incredibly difficult extra characters on a piece of paper. B-L-O-O-D. 
That, my friends, is apparently just simply too much for us to ask. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 1, one man's personal quest to explain another man's perplexing death. What happened exactly to Victor Newberry of Glen Ellen, North Dakota, found dead next to his vehicle in December of 2014? My name is James Walner. Music by Julia Kent. Visit dakotaspotlight.com for more information. Suggest stories for future seasons, submit tips and questions, see photographs, and sign up for the newsletter. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. In this episode, we're going to do a bunch of things, which I'll call segments, with the following titles. News, Questions, Toxicology, Hop Sing, and Tiffany. And that's a lot, so let's start with the news, new things I've learned since the last episode. First, I learned that the state medical examiner of North Dakota is retiring. You'll remember me talking about him in episode two because he's the person that performed the autopsy on Victor Newberry and also because some of his previous rulings have been overturned in Virginia. I've asked the North Dakota Department of Health for clarity on when his retirement became official and at the time of this recording, I'm waiting on an answer. When I interviewed Kirby Kruger a few months ago at the North Dakota Department of Health, he did not mention to me that Dr. Masello would be retiring soon. I did not ask him either. I'll let you know what I find out. The second bit of news is that I've now spoken with Andrew Sheeler on the phone. Andrew is the reporter that I spoke about last time. He reported on Victor's death from the very beginning, and in his news report, he wrote that Victor was found at 2.30 a.m., not 7.30 a.m., as the police report claims. Mr. Sheeler no longer lives in North Dakota, but he is still a journalist. He's now writing primarily for the Sacramento Bee in California. Of course, he didn't remember this one article from his past. I asked him how likely it might be that he got the time wrong when he reported it. He told me that there were two possibilities. One would be a keystroke error while typing, and the other would be that he just got it wrong when he took his notes. Mr. Sheeler is a reporter, so a huge part of a journalist's training and education is all about getting the facts and details like times, places, and names correct. In fact, that's his job. Andrew Sheeler told me that he felt it was unlikely, although anything is possible, that he wrote down the wrong time in his notes while talking to the sheriff. He also doubted that it was a keystroke error and noted that the number 2 is not located near the number 7 on a keyboard. This is the case both on a keyboard where the numbers are above the letters across the top or on that 3x3 column grid number pad often to the right. 
If you intend to hit the key for the number 7, you're not going to accidentally hit the key for number 2. So that is the news. The medical examiner is retiring, and the reporter basically stands by his reporting. The next segment, I said, is questions, and there are a lot of them. I sent a number of follow-up questions to the sheriff, and I thought I'd share those questions and the answers I got. Also, I'll touch on some questions I got from listeners this week. But I'll start with the questions I sent to the sheriff. You remember that the deputy wrote in his report that Victor's wallet was lying on the ground. I asked the sheriff's office for more details, where on the ground, and how close to Victor. The answer I got was that the wallet was close enough to be within reach of Victor, but the deputy did not remember exactly where it was. Next question. Daniel Johnson called 911 to report that he'd been driving along the gravel road and came across Victor. I asked if Daniel Johnson approached Victor before calling 911 or if he stayed up at the road. The answer was, quote, When Deputy Kreisen arrived, Mr. Johnson was in his vehicle on the road. It is not known if Mr. Johnson went into the ditch previously, unquote. I wanted to ask Mr. Johnson this question myself, but he's declined to be interviewed. Next question. Was Henry Palazzo ever interviewed? Answer. No. The next question I sent is a two-part question. Part 1. Are there any laws against one person leaving another person in the situation Victor was left in? Answer. That depends. The surrounding circumstances mean everything. Part 2 of this two-part question was, did you ever consider Tiffany's actions to be a crime in any fashion? No answer was provided. The next question I asked was, was medical examiner Masello informed that Victor was not alone at the spot where he died? Answer. The detective was present at the autopsy and would have answered any questions the medical examiner asked. He does not remember what, if any, questions were asked. Next question. How instrumental were the findings of Dr. Masello in deciding that the death was an accident? Answer. Great weight is given to the findings of the medical examiner. The next question I asked was, did the surveillance video show who Victor left with? If so, who was it? The answer, however, was no. Question. Tiffany was pulled over at 1.54 a.m. by Officer Pastor. Do we know what she did between 1 a.m. when the bars closed and 1.54 a.m.? Answer, no. I did ask a couple more questions of them, but I'll tell you about those later in a different context. Now I'd like to tell you about the open records request I made to the sheriff's office and what they were able to provide me with. I'll also touch on some comments and questions I got this week from listeners. As I already explained previously, I requested the audio and videotape recordings of interviews with Tiffany, Ashley, and Dave. As I also explained, the video cannot be found. The state's attorney's office said there were IT difficulties and that the recordings were lost due to that. They were not deleted on purpose, they said. This week, a listener reached out with the following. Quote, The explanation regarding the lost evidence is a little confusing. If the information was transferred to a CD or DVD, an IT difficulty should not have affected it. 
Also, I thought when things were backed up on a server, that is done in part to protect the information from being lost. What about the other things that were taken into evidence? I recall maybe a bank slip found at the scene, things left in the bag at the police station, etc. Are they lost as well? This, of course, is a very important point. The previous sheriff told us in the last episode that the routine was to make hard copies on DVDs or CDs and put those in the evidence room. The question is, were those DVDs ever made, or were they made and are now missing? I also asked for the surveillance video from JR's bar. The answer I got back was that they no longer have that either. The incident report by Deputy Kreisen states that the detective asked him to bring blank DVDs to JR's bar to capture it all. Hard copies of that video have existed at some point, so in this case those IT difficulties do not explain the missing audio and video completely. Where did those DVDs end up? I also asked for all written interview notes made by the detective when interviewing the following people. Tiffany, Ashley, Dave, Henry, his brother, Marvin Wetzel, Donna Schantz, Stephen, and, quote, any other persons interviewed regarding the incident, unquote. I was supplied with a photocopy of one piece of notepaper. I'll put a redacted version of it on dakotaspotlight.com under the photo section for episode 9. However, there's really nothing of interest on this note that is not in the police reports. I also asked to see the keychain that was found inside a brown paper bag left at the police department in Glen Ullen. The reporting officer on that incident report states that writing on the bag indicated that it had something to do with Victor's death. He states clearly that he transported the bag to the Morton County Sheriff's Office and placed it in the detective's office. The answer I got was, quote, there is no keychain held by Morton County and no images, unquote. I also asked for a photograph of the axe handle Victor had brought to the bar for self-protection. The answer I got was this, there are no images of an axe handle, but, and this part I found surprising and interesting, an image is being taken for the purpose of responding to this request and will be included. And I did get a picture of Victor's axe handle, which you can see at the website. So somewhere, I assume, in the evidence locker or elsewhere, Victor's axe handle exists today. Somewhere there's a box or locker or area or something with evidence about this case. There's an axe handle in it, but no DVDs. I also asked for all of the photographs taken at the scene by both officers, and I was provided with what certainly looks like what would be all of the photographs. I find it odd, though, that some of the digital evidence exists, but not all. If photographs and videos were uploaded to a server, and then IT difficulties resulted in that data being lost, you would think that it would all be lost. In other words, the photographs, too. In addition, I asked for the photographs that were taken of Victor's vehicle a few days later, back at the sheriff's department somewhere. The detective notes that he didn't find anything of interest, and he photographed the interior. The answer I got was, the Morton County Sheriff's Office has no images that respond to this request. That is the extent of what I asked for from the Sheriff's Department. I'd like to read some questions I got from listeners this week. 
Here's the first one. Did anyone actually see the chick walking along the road after she left Victor? And she said she saw two vehicles. Did they see her? It's all too weird. Well, I can only guess, but if you consider the following, I think you'll probably agree with me when I say that it's highly unlikely that law enforcement went looking for people who might have seen her. Consider this. Law enforcement were told by Marvin Wetzel, the owner of the bar, that a man named Henry Palazzo had threatened Victor in the past. Sharon Hunter, Victor's girlfriend, told them the same thing that very morning, and she told them that when she talked to Victor on the phone the night before, she had taken the time to ask Victor if Henry was in the bar or not. Henry was in the bar, but what is more interesting, I think, is that Victor's girlfriend took the time to actively ask Victor if Henry was there. It was a thing that they actively discussed. And Sharon Hunter told the deputy about the axe handle that Victor had brought to the bar for self-protection, and Marvin Wetzel confirmed it and said that Victor had brought it to the bar within the last couple of weeks. Finally, Marvin Wetzel told law enforcement that Henry had come into the bar around midnight and said something like, kill them fucking N-word. And despite all of that, Henry Palazzo was never questioned or interviewed by law enforcement. So my point is simply this. If, despite all that, Henry was never questioned, then I'm pretty darn sure that law enforcement never went looking for people who may or may not have seen a woman walking down the road. And while we're talking about Tiffany walking back, let me say this. She says that while she was walking, she looked back and she thought that one of the two vehicles stopped where Victor was. Considering how drunk she was, which we will get to, I'm wondering if those cars passed her on the gravel road or if they maybe passed her while she was walking on South Avenue. It's much more likely that if any vehicle passed her, they did so on South Avenue. Obviously, I have no way of knowing and I could be wrong. Maybe two vehicles really did go down that gravel road for some reason that night and they did pass her. But here's the thing about that, too. If someone were to pass a woman walking down the road at around 11.30 on a cold night, it's highly possible that they would stop and ask her if she needed help. Maybe not if she was on South Avenue, a paved street with houses and such, but I can tell you that if a person came across a woman walking along that gravel road out there at night, I feel it's quite likely that they would stop and ask if she needed some kind of help. It seems odd to me that two cars would drive past her on a road that really goes nowhere. Simply put, I didn't know if I really bought Tiffany's story. Another listener wondered, regarding Ashley's route and her U-turn near where Victor died, how do we know she wasn't coming from the spot where Victor was just before her DUI? And that's a really good point, too. I said last time that she was coming from the bars, but she could have been coming from the spot where Victor was. Another question I got is this. Is there a toxicology report on Victor? And the answer is yes, there is. And I might as well tell you about it now in this segment I'm calling Toxicology. Victor did not die from a drug overdose. That much is clear. On the other hand, that does not mean that the combination of alcohol and muscle relaxers did not cause him to pass out. As we already know, the official version is that he died from being exposed to the cold for too long, hypothermia. He didn't get up and save himself because he was passed out, and yes, if that's the real story of why he was unconscious, then yes, that part of this event is an accident. He didn't save himself because he could not. 
But the other part, if it's true, the part where Tiffany also does not save him, is that also an accident? A toxicology report is kind of hard to read, but I do understand English, and with a little work, I can tell you the following, even though I won't be able to pronounce everything correctly. First of all, the only illegal drug in his system was a little bit of marijuana. There was no ecstasy and no meth. The following things were in his system. The way it's broken down, it sounds like he was popping all kinds of pills, but the thing is that some of his prescription medications for his back surgery have more than one type of compound in them, and the compounds are listed separately on the report. So one medication pill might show up as two or three compounds in the report. Here's what they found. Alcohol. His alcohol level was .106, so over the legal driving limit. If he'd been tested, he would have failed a sobriety test. They also found caffeine and nicotine. He also had a small level of THC or marijuana in his system. It was less than 5 nanograms per milliliter. The others are various compounds from his muscle relaxers. I won't be able to pronounce all of them. Again, these are compounds, not pills. Some pills have several compounds. Diazepam. A regular dose, that is, if the patient is using it as directed, should show between 100 and 400 nanograms per milliliter. Between 100 and 400. Victor's was 85. It would require about 5,000 nanograms per milliliter to overdose on this compound alone. However, I should note that alcohol greatly increases its activity. Another compound is nordazepram. Properly used, you should see about 390 nanograms per milliliter. Victor had 180. According to the toxicology report, a fatal case was reported once when a person had the following. 5,500 nanograms per milliliter along with 0.18 alcohol. 5,500 with 0.18 alcohol. Victor had 390, far from 5,500, and his alcohol level was 0.1, not 0.18. And there are a couple more compounds from his painkillers that are in this report, but the same goes for them. He is light years away from an actual overdose, dying from the drugs themselves. However, it is likely that the combination of those with alcohol could have made him very drowsy and, who knows, just lightheaded. If he had just passed out in his own bed, he would not have died from hypothermia, though, and the question is, would he have died at all? Not according to the official cause and manner of death determined by the North Dakota Medical Examiner. I'm calling this segment Hop Singh. Hop Singh is the name of a character on a television show named Bonanza that aired in the United States from 1959 to 1973. In this western, set in the 1800s, viewers followed Ben Cartwright and his sons on the Ponderosa Ranch. Hop Singh was their Chinese butler. He wore a long braided ponytail down his back all the way to his waist. Hey, Hop Singh, is this what you do in your day off? Missy and they teach Hopsing make a fairly fine tiny dish. Hong Kong Mulligan. Let me explain why we are talking about Hop Sing. There's one question that I asked the sheriff's department that I've not told you about yet. You'll remember that the police report states that Tiffany claims a bartender from Doc's bar offered to give her a ride home to Elgin. She also states that she asked him to drive to the spot where Victor was. 
She stated that the bartender drove for a while, and then he said he could not go any further. Tiffany states that this bartender ended up not giving her a ride to Elgin. I wondered, what did that mean? To drive from the bar to Victor was a distance of 0.9 miles. If this bartender drove 25 miles an hour, which is the speed limit on South Avenue, it would have taken them just two and a half minutes to get there. Why would the bartender tell her he couldn't go any further? And for that matter, if Tiffany was implying that she told this man that they were going to check on a person who needed help, oddly one and a half hours after she left Victor, what person wouldn't be willing to drive any further? It didn't make sense. Who was this bartender? Well, the bartender, as you will see, is someone who some called Hop Singh. I thought, this person is a very pivotal and important person. Why? Because he seems to be the only person that Tiffany remembers asking for help. But it didn't quite add up for so many reasons. If you're going to save someone, you do it right away. Don't you run into the bar and say, or maybe even scream, I need help. I wondered if this story was even a true story, or was it something Tiffany made up or told the police to make it at least sound like she did something, at least at some point, to help Victor? So, I asked the sheriff's department if the bartender with the van was ever interviewed about this story. The answer I got back was basically that they didn't think so, but they couldn't remember for sure. So, as you've probably learned by now, I decided I'd have to find the bartender with a van and ask him those questions myself. Before we hear from him, I will give you the short version of my long search to find him. When Victor died, Doc's bar was owned by a man named Dr. Shu, H-S-U. That was not his nickname. He was a real doctor, and unfortunately, he passed away in September of 2015. Dr. Shu and his family lived in Elgin, North Dakota, which only by coincidence is the same town where Tiffany and her brother Dave had come from on that day. Even though I knew Dr. Shu had passed away, I drove to Elgin in search of his family or anyone who knew him. I found the Shu homestead and I spoke with one of Dr. Shu's family members. They didn't remember a bartender with a van that worked for their father, but they gave me the name of a woman in Elgin who might know. A couple phone calls later, and I was told that there was a bartender who drove a minivan working at Doc's Bar, and his name was Hop Singh. So, because Doc's Bar was owned by a man born in China, and because I was told that the bartender was named Hop Singh, I spent the next couple of weeks trying to find an Asian man named Hop Singh with a van. Hop Singh was, of course, just this man's nickname, and to my surprise, Hop Singh was no stranger to me at all. It turns out he is a bartender right in Hebron, North Dakota, and I know him pretty darn well. His name is Rick, and I can only say that I consider him to be a very credible guy. He is very well liked in Hebron, and I run into him all the time. I had no idea that he had ever worked in Glen Olin, or that he had ever had a nickname of Hop Singh. I asked him to tell me what he remembered from that night when he offered Tiffany Elwood a ride home. And before we were done, Rick was questioning if he ever again should offer another intoxicated customer a ride home in the dark winter night. Uh, my name is uh, Rick Ramos. I live in Hebron, North Dakota, and I work right here at Miller's uh, Miller's Cave. The bar? Yes. And how long have you been in North Dakota? Uh, going on nine years now. But in 2014, you didn't work here in Hebron at um, Miller's, you 
I know you worked at Docs, and you had a nickname when you were working there. I've had quite a few nicknames. And what, you know the one I'm referring to? Yeah, Hopsing. Well, tell me, how did that start? Well, I was, uh, I was a bartender there. I had a ponytail down to my waist, and I would grow my, my mustache in a Fu Manchu sometimes. So they said I looked Asian, and then they started saying I look like Hop Singh from Bonanza. And it's kind of stuck. I pulled out some photographs I'd found of the three strangers online, and then I asked Rick about that night. So let's go back to the day after Christmas 2014, December 26th. Um, you were working at Docs at the time, and how would you get there? I would drive from, from Hebron to Glendolen. In your van. Right. Okay, so according to the police report, these three people, two girls and a guy, came into town. Could you describe, do you, well, do you remember them? Um, vaguely, I do remember the incident that happened. Right. Does this girl look familiar? Oh, yeah, that's her. That's the girl that you offered to give her a ride? Yeah. What about, oh, I couldn't print that one, hold on. This is the way she looked here, the, bot the bottom picture. Rick is going to be using a slang term that you might not quite understand. He uses the word grinding on or to grind on. This is used to express when two people are in a passionate situation, kissing and basically potentially at the verge of impending intercourse. Does she I think that's the one that her brother was grinding on. It was grinding on her brother. Would that be her brother, possibly? Let me see. Yeah, it looks like him, yeah. If you recognize them, you know. No, yeah, him, I, I definitely, because he had me wor very worried. He did? Yeah, because I wasn't sure if they had their clothes on or not when I was walking towards them. Okay, let's, uh, you were walking towards them? Rick explained what was going on inside docks right before Tiffany came back into the bar, which we now know was after walking back from the spot where Victor was laying out in the cold. She was sitting on his lap. The blonde, the blonde, was, was, the blonde was sitting on, on the guy's lap. And they were, she was kind of grinding on me, and I was on the other side of the bar, and I was kind of worried. I said, oh, please don't let him, because we've seen some weird things in bars when I'm working. And so I was kind of worried, so I went up there to check. Well, right about that time, his sister walks, or she said she was his sister, and she said that she walked in and started smacking him. She started smacking her brother? Yeah. Like, how would she, with her hand, fists? Or? With her fists. And they got in, they got into it. Well, they stood up, and my friends didn't know if I was in trouble or not, so they all stood up. And I told them if they didn't behave, I'd have to call the cops. If I remember right, I did call the police that night. They did gave him a warning, and she said she had no way to get home because she couldn't find her keys. Well, the brother couldn't find the keys either. I offered her a ride. I told her, if you need a ride, I will give you a ride. You know, I don't want you driving. I do worry about my customers. I don't want them drinking, drunk, drunk driving, because if something happens, I could be liable. I can attest to that. Rick does take care of his customers. I've seen that in him right here in the bar in Hebron. So she told me she lived in Elgin. I, said, I didn't want to go to Elgin, but I said, okay, fine, I'll give you a ride. And she starts uh, giving me directions, but she starts coming. we start coming to Hebron instead of, instead of Elgin. So I told her, you know what, we're heading the wrong way. Here's a map going to show you now do you remember the intersection i talked about last time where ashley made her curious u-turn i said then that this intersection would come up again in this story as you will hear when hop singh was driving tiffany home she insisted that he not drive straight through the intersection towards their destination of elgin but instead she had a strong desire for him to turn right at that intersection 
you'll remember that the turnoff to the gravel road where Victor was was also a right turn just a few hundred feet before this intersection. It would be very easy, especially when drunk, to miss that turnoff in the dark and confuse the intersection as the spot where one would turn right onto the gravel road. Junior's is here. I guess that's the main drag. Mm -hmm. And you come up here, and then we we went this way. Instead, we should have came up this way to Elgin. But she she must she asked. She told me she told me to make a, a right. right. Rick told me that he didn't know his way around fully at the time and thought, well, maybe there's another way to Elgin. But after a few miles, he told Tiffany they were going the wrong way. This was not the way to Elgin. Tiffany told him to take her back to Glen Olin, where Rick helped her find her keys, which were found inside of J.R.'s bar. And she started up a car and said, sweetie, you're going to get stopped. And she said, no, I'll be all right. And she took off. I asked Rick how drunk Tiffany really was, in his opinion. He ought to know, I thought, since he is a bartender. It wasn't so much that she was really drunk. Well, she was drunk. I mean, she, was, she shouldn't be operating a motor vehicle. But uh, she was very emotional. That's another thing that made her look even worse. She was pissed off at her brother. And she was, wouldn't, wouldn't stop screaming and yelling and, and at him. So I knew she, if, if she was to drove the way she, with her anger the way she was and being drunk, she could have hurt herself or killed somebody else. She was really upset. Yeah. I want to show you something on that map, and um, we can talk about it a little bit. I pointed out on the map where Victor died and the close proximity of the intersection and the gravel road turnoff. West mm -hmm. along the main drag, and when you get down here. But she wanted you to turn right. She asked me to turn right. I'm going to show you where Victor died. He was right. Where's the bridge? Right here. Oh, wow. She probably missed that. And, and Which obviously brings me back to that most important question. Did she ever tell you there was possibly a man somewhere that she no. wanted help with? No, she didn't. If she would have, if, if I would have found out if somebody was in danger or hurt, I would have, I would have called the cops and would have went there. Okay, I'm going to read part of the police report and then... Indicated when she got back to the bar, she got into an altercation with her brother and the sheriff's department was called. That sounds accurate. I called it, yeah. After the bar altercation, the bartender at Doc's bar offered to give her a ride home to Elgin. She said, when they left in his van, she asked him to drive to the area where Victor was at. She didn't. She never mentioned She never mentioned Victor. She she didn't mention anybody. She just said she, was, she wanted me to give her a ride to Elgin. She stated he drove for a while, and the man turned around and said he could, go, could not go any further. No, I told her we were going the wrong way. We were heading to Hebron instead of Elgin. Yeah, she didn't tell me anything about any guy. And, and the way the police reports reads, it's almost like sounding like you weren't willing to go help her find this guy, but you didn't even. She didn't tell me about a guy. If she would have told me about somebody being hurt, I would have helped. Again, I guess you never know for sure about anyone, but I know Rick, and I believe him. At least I feel Rick is the type of person who would help someone in this situation. He gives his drunk customers a ride home when they need one, and he would help a person in need. That's what I believe. Let's just play with the idea for a moment that she was trying to get you out to the spot where Victor died, but not telling you that there was a guy there. What possible reasons could she could have been mad at me because I called the cops? I was I'm starting to worry and think maybe she had it in for me, or maybe if I go out there and put my fingerprints all over the, all over the place, you know, I could be go to trouble, get in trouble for it. 
you get out of the car. Let's say you, she gets you out there. You get out of the car. Then it's suddenly your word against hers. What exactly. Happened? The next day, I assume you heard the next day something? I heard the next day that Victor had been, had been, it was cold night. They think he froze to death or he might have been killed. You know, it was a bunch of speculation. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd... You know, I really didn't think about the... That turn could have been a little bit sooner. Let's say that she'd gotten the the turn right. Yeah. She's got, just come up here. I want to show That you could something. turn the story all totally, totally around, and that'd be that's scary. And I got a habit of everybody that I serve, if I feel that they drank too much, I cut them off, and I'll ask them, do you need a ride home? Because I don't want to see none of my, none of my customers hurt. But now you're making me think if that's a good idea anymore. I want to tell you what I learned when I went looking for and when I found Tiffany Elwood. I've realized it's a lonely place to be when you're trying to put together a story that you already knew from the beginning would not have a happy ending. You find yourself hoping that whatever the ending is, it'll be the one that's the least sad. In the end, though, it doesn't matter what you want. The ending is the ending, and all you can do is try to find it. Tiffany Elwood played the same game with me as did Ashley Omdahl. She spoke with me once on the phone, and then she texted me a few times, declined an interview, and then she disappeared and stopped answering. One of the times she stopped answering was apparently due to the fact that she got another DUI in Montana, where she now lives. She couldn't answer me because she was in jail again. I sent her letters. I created an account needed to allow inmates to call me free of charge, but I've not heard back in weeks. Instead of telling you the details and dates and places about Tiffany's criminal past, like I did with Ashley, I'm going to instead summarize so I can focus on the bigger question at hand. Did Tiffany really just leave Victor for dead? And if so, will she tell me why? Would she be honest and accountable about it, or would she make excuses? Or was her story going to be nothing like what we've heard so far? What was her story? When I discovered that Tiffany, just like Ashley, has continued to struggle with drugs and alcohol after this tragic event in Glenolin, I have to say my heart sank even more. I don't know a lot about addiction and alcoholism, but I do know that there's something called hitting rock bottom. Hitting rock bottom is that event or thing that makes an addict or alcoholic realize that they have a problem. It's the thing that propels them into recovery. What made me sad was that Victor's death was apparently not enough for Tiffany to hit rock bottom, or at least that's how it looked on the court documents. Tiffany, it seems, continued to struggle with addiction. I've never been an addict, and I know that means that I can't really understand it. But still, I would hope that if I got so messed up with drugs or alcohol, if I was so out of touch one night that I'd walked away from a man when he needed help, a man who then died, I would hope that for me, that would be rock bottom for sure. Sadly, though, when I learned more about her, I did understand that Victor's death was not enough for Tiffany to hit rock bottom because even before that night, Tiffany had had her children taken away from her due to her addiction. And she's had more children since the night Victor died, too, and she's lost custody of those children, too. And if losing custody of your own children is not enough for a mother to hit rock bottom, then honestly, I don't think anything is. 
The deeper I looked into this part of the story, the sadder it got. Tiffany's biological mother died of alcoholism before the age of 50. Tiffany's adoptive parents told me that they'd spent at least $20,000 on rehab for Tiffany, but even at the time of this recording, I believe she's incarcerated for yet another offense. I told Tiffany's parents that I would really like to understand addiction a little better and how has it affected not only their lives, but Tiffany's children's lives, too. At the time of this recording, I'm waiting to hear back from them about an interview. Maybe in a bonus episode in the future, I can tell you more. What Tiffany's parents could tell me was that people addicted to drugs are expert manipulators. They learn how to lie, to bend the truth, and they know how to appeal to other people's sympathy and empathy. I guess that's not news to anyone at this point, but I did take that into consideration when I spoke with and texted with Tiffany. I've used a voice actor to narrate Tiffany's texts. What are the questions? I'm not sure if they'll be answered, but you can ask. That time in my life really messed with me. It's taken me a long time to come to terms with and accept and have forgiveness for that night. It's not easy for me, or nor am I trying to hold anyone back from the truth. I'll give you answers. I understand. I've cried over Victor's family for years. I'm in a weird spot in my life right now, and it's just bad timing right now. I'm not a bad person in any way. I asked her where she had been between 1 a.m. and 1.54 a.m. when she got her DUI. I don't know, some guy walked me to his house and was being a creep, and I jetted out getting a DUI. I have been able to confirm this. Tiffany was at someone's house just north of the railroad tracks near the bars. I was able to confirm this because Tiffany's adoptive parents told me that they sent their son to Glen Ullen from Elgin to try to find Tiffany and Dave that night. They were afraid that this very thing would happen, not a death, but a DUI. Tiffany and Dave had gone into Elgin that day from their farm to get an ice cream, they said. But instead of ice cream, they didn't come back and they spent their day drinking in Elgin and, as we know, Glen Ullen. Tiffany's older brother drove around Glen Ullen looking for his sister to try to keep her from getting into more trouble. When Tiffany saw him, she fled from her own brother for some reason. Tiffany's brother found her car parked outside of a house north of the railroad tracks. When she left there, Tiffany got her DUI. Her blood alcohol level was 0.2, way over the legal driving limit of 0.08. Tiffany was wasted. Tiffany did not deny that she was with Victor and that she left him. She's sticking to that part of her story. I came out of a blackout with him trying to have sex with me. You have no idea how hard this has been on me. I had no idea where we were, how we got there. Listen, I did everything I could think of in my drunk, druggy-out mind. I didn't want that to happen to him. I didn't mean to leave him for dead. I tried to pick him up. I tried to wake him. He was too heavy. But in contrast to what everyone else seems to remember, Tiffany claims that she really did do everything in her power to get help. According to her, she was being accountable, but nobody else was. She claimed that nobody in Glen Ellen would help her. I tried flagging down cars that drove by. I tried to get people from the bar to come help me find him. I was just the drunk native girl at the bar. I fucking told everyone and no one believed me. There are no reports of Tiffany asking anyone at the bar to help her find Victor, and that seems like something people would remember and talk about after Victor died. 
The police that responded to the altercation at Doc's bar have no note in the report that Tiffany was asking them for help. Nor does the bartender, Rick, or Hop Singh, remember her asking for help when she got back to the bar either. What everyone does remember and what is documented is that Tiffany punched her friends in the face. That's what people remember her doing when she got back to the bar, not that she came in yelling for people to help her to save a man's life. In contrast to what he told me, Tiffany claims that she did tell Hop Singh about Victor. I did tell that bartender. He even drove me out there to try and find Victor. The bartender convinced me he was found or helped by someone. And, she said, not even the police would help her out. I told them when I got a DUI. I told them. You'll remember that I said I needed to get Tiffany's side of the story. Well, now that I had it, I didn't know what to make of it. To believe Tiffany's side of the story, I had to believe that Rick or Hop Singh, a friend of mine whom I trust, had lied to me. I had to believe that the police refused to help Tiffany when she got a DUI, and I had to believe that no car stopped along the road to help her out. I could have brushed aside Tiffany's story completely and rejected it without any further investigation. I found it simply very far-fetched. But I'd come this far, checking and double-checking facts, and so, for the sake of being thorough, I looked for ways to verify or disprove Tiffany's claims. And actually, the following things also contributed to my decision to keep investigating, because they could indicate that there really was some truth to some of Tiffany's claims, in particular, her claim that she told law enforcement when she got her DUI. Here are three things that are a little bit odd. 1. Andrew Sheeler of the Bismarck Tribune said Victor was found at 2.30 a.m. Tiffany was now telling me that she told the deputy sheriff who pulled her over at 1.54 that a man needed help. Number 2. The interview recordings are missing. We have the sheriff department's report, but we don't have the interview audio. Why? What was said in that interview exactly? Number 3. Daniel Johnson would not speak with me. He's the person who reportedly found Victor at 7.30 and made the 911 call. The Tribune says 2.30, but the man who police say found him at 7.30 won't talk to me. And yes, I tried to get the 911 recording, but I was told they're not kept around for that long. I took everything I'd learned and I put it on a table like pieces of a puzzle, and I went to work attempting to put it together in a way that would support Tiffany's story. Everyone is trying Next time on Dakota Spotlight. Everyone, Everyone is trying to get to the bar. Name of the bar. The bar is called Heaven. With, or 1039, going to be on Main Street and Oak Avenue East and Glen Ellen, uh, possibly 1055. This is uh, one of the individuals from the bar incident earlier.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.